Well, hey, uh, grab a seat. And as you do, uh, I'm, I'm going uh, to start with an impromptu sermonette, and then we're going to get to the real sermon. That sound good? Impromptu sermonette. Um, we were singing a song uh, two songs ago. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. And now if you're familiar with the Bible, you've grown up in church, you know exactly what we're singing and why we're singing it. But I was sitting there in both services going, if you are walking into church this morning and for some reason uh, your life has, has hit a point where you're like, I need, I need to go to church. I believe there's a God. I want to know this God. And you walked into this place and you go, these people are singing about blood. What in the world are they singing about? A quick history of why we're singing what we're singing. This is not the sermon. This is the impromptu sermon, okay? In the history, if you read the Bible, in the history of the Jewish faith, you have sacrifice. You sin, you brought a sacrifice. Uh, the blood of an animal would atone for the sin before the Lord. The, 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 the people of the faith of old were longing for the day when, when a Messiah would come, where, where there would be a, a perfect lamb of God who would take away the, the, the sin of the world in such a way that once that sacrifice happened, no no more sacrifices were needed. Good news, that guy came. His name is Jesus. And so when Jesus went to the cross, he is the perfect final sacrifice. So when we sin, we no longer need to drag bulls, drag goats, drag whatever to be sacrificed because Jesus came. His death on the cross has um, extreme significance for your life. He was the perfect final sacrifice. Here's what that means for you if you're in here and for some reason you've stumbled into church on this rainy morning because you, you want to know the God of the universe. Here's what that means for you. You are in a room full of people who are full of sin. If, if you came to church this morning going, I need to turn my life around so I need to get around good people, we're not good people. We are people marred with the same kind of sin that mars your life. But here's what kind of people we are. We are people who, because we see no inherent goodness enough, have completely thrown our life on the one who is inherently good, and his name is Jesus. And he went to the cross and he shed his blood. And why we're singing so passionately about the blood of Jesus is because we know we have no other hope than to put our faith in his sacrifice on our behalf for our sin to be atoned for. And so impromptu sermon, and this is maybe why you're here, what you need to do right now is call on this Savior. To say, okay, I, I'm, I, I'm hearing you. I'm not here because these people are good. I'm here because the Savior is good, and he has died because of my sin. And it's my sin that has brought me in here. It's my longing to be right with God. How you get right with God today, the Bible says, call on the Savior. Call on the name of Jesus, and you will be saved. You're like, what do I say? You call right now in your seat. You tell him, Lord, I see my sin. I see your blood that you shed for me. I'm putting all my faith on you as the final atoning sacrifice for me. I want to know you. You tell him that right now. Impromptu sermon over. I felt the need for anyone in here who doesn't know Jesus that you know why we're singing what we're singing and that you call on this Jesus right now. Real sermon coming. Acts 18. 
Grab your Bible. If you need a Bible under a seat close by, you'll find a Bible. Turn with me to the book of Acts and find chapter 18. And as you turn there, um, I want to tell you why Wednesdays in college were our favorite day of the week. Um, Every Wednesday would roll around, and for 12 to 15, sometimes upwards of 20 guys at Wabash College, around dinner time, we would make our way off of campus, and we would find ourselves walking once again another week through the front door of a, of a couple named Kevin and Jill. Every single Wednesday, Kevin and Jill, who were members of the church that we all attended, would open their home to us and would invite 12, 15, sometimes 20 Christian college guys over into their dining room, into their living room, and week after week, Wednesday after Wednesday, there we would be sitting at Kevin and Jill's for dinner. And we loved this because we'd walk in and there would be this spread before you. And after six days of the Spark Center cafeteria food, dinner at Kevin and Jill's was just a welcome sight. We loved this because Kevin and Jill's house and their basement, their dining room, their living room, their basement, it became a place of solace, a place of escape from papers and exams. We loved this because uh, for this group of Christian guys, this became kind of a rallying point. A place that we could come in the middle of the week and encourage one another. We love this because as we process through significant life decisions, like graduation is coming and we got to figure out what we're going to do about this whole job thing. Or the longtime girlfriend I've been dating, I'm thinking of popping the question. Kevin and Jill became the kind of impromptu advisors and counselors to us as we process through these things. Um, a couple years ago, Kevin and Jill had a reunion of sorts with uh, the group of guys who used to fill their living room every single Wednesday night. And um, I just was kind of sitting back that night thinking about all the things that happened for the furthering our, of our faith in those Wednesday nights during college. I was just looking around, and there we were, like adults with like little kids crawling around in careers that had been undertaken. Uh, the biceps had shrunk and the waistlines had grown but I was just looking at us like, look at us, we're adults. But what kind of formation happened every single Wednesday, week in and week out, in this living room right here? I think Kevin and Jill got it. Um, they got that their house wasn't just a place that they were supposed to lay their head on the pillow at the end of the day. They got that their house was the Lord's and their life was the Lord's. And all of it was open to the Lord to do what he wanted to do with it. Did some Wednesday mornings roll around and probably the last thing Jill felt like doing was making dinner for 15 college guys? Did they, did they put on a smile through decorative vases that were broken only to when we left be extremely upset about it was it convenient week after week to open their no it wasn't but i think they got it now i bring that i bring up kevin jill as a, kevin and jill as a modern day example of a couple we're going to run into here in acts chapter 18 um let me give you a little background paul is on a second missionary journey we've just camped out with him for two weeks in the city of athens 
And it was in the city of Athens that Paul is confronted. He was grieved. He confronted these idols that he saw there. Uh, Paul is then going to hang a left, and he's going to go west in the same kind of area of modern-day Greece. But he's going to find his way in a city of Corinth. Look at me in verse 1, if you will. Acts 18, verse 1 says this. After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. Now, a little bit about the city of Corinth. Uh, we preached uh, a message on Easter from 1 Corinthians, and we gave some background on Corinth then. But let me remind you of what the, what the place of Corinth is like. Corinth, geographically, it was situated on a narrow strip of land that separated the Adriatic Sea from the Aegean Sea. And so Corinth's geographic position made it a hotbed of trade. Ships could come in from both directions, and um, uh, Corinth was a place that was uh, pretty well known for its wealth. A lot of business happened in this city. Corinth, was like Athens, was also a place in which idols abounded. No idol was more prominent than a temple that sat on top of the, the Acropolis in Corinth, or what's called the Acrocorinth. And in Corinth, that temple was devoted to the goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of love, not the biblical love that we would know love to be. Aphrodite was the goddess of sex, beauty, pleasure. Um, some, if you can picture this, some ancient historians talk about, and I don't know if this is embellishment or if this is fact, but they talk about as night would descend on the city of Corinth, as many as like a thousand temple prostitutes would make their way down from the Acrocorinth into the city that was full of sail sailors and businessmen and the like. Sex and money were the lowercase g gods of Corinth. We even see that as Paul later is going to write letters to these believers in Corinth. He's going to have to address the sexual promiscuity and renegade sexuality in which even the believers are living there. And so if we said Athens, get in your head New York City and think of the different cultural elements of New York City, is there any other city in our country that would come to mind where money and sex run rampant? Hollywood's good. Vegas. Um, if you've ever walked the strip of Vegas as a Christian and you have felt extremely out of place, imagine now Paul, little Jewish guy from Tarsus, finding himself in Corinth and people going, what happens in Corinth, man, stays in Corinth. <laughs> this is what Corinth was like. So you can imagine a sight for sore eyes that someone like Paul, for Paul to find someone like him there. And that's exactly what God brings across his path. Verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul comes across a a man from a Jewish background here. I'm also going to argue in this sermon that I believe Aquila and Priscilla were believers in Jesus before Paul met them. And I argue that not because there's a verse I can point to that says, and here's where Aquila and Priscilla got saved. I, I argue it because there's no verse like that. 
Most people who were saved under the Apostle Paul's ministry, especially people who have significant impact in the life of the early church, it would have told us here's where they were saved. I believe Aquila and Priscilla were people from Jewish faith who were followers of Jesus pre-coming to Corinth. And they didn't come to Corinth on their own doing. This wasn't a strategic life decision for them. They came to Corinth because an edict had been placed by the Roman Emperor Claudius that said, all Jews, you're out of here. Get out. And Aquila and Priscilla made their way down to Corinth, probably because of the hotbed of trade and commerce that the city was, because these were people with their own business that we will find out more about shortly. But I want to stop here, and I just want to set the stage for this message. This message will be very different in some ways from other messages that we preach here normally. This message is going to take on a bit more of a character study to it. We are going to dive as deeply as we can into this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, that we're introduced to here in Acts 18. And then if you're familiar with the New Testament, or if you just started reading the New Testament, here's what you would find out about this couple. Their names are going to keep popping up. Paul's going to end a letter to the believers over in this city, and he's going to say, hey, 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 and greet Aquila and Priscilla. And you're like, how'd they get over there? And then Paul's going to write another letter later, and he said, oh, yeah, and there's a church that meets in Aquila and Priscilla. And you're like, how are they? Remember, who remembers where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? Anyone remember that? It, where in the world there are Aquila and Priscilla? I'm, I'm going to argue and lay before us this couple quietly had a massive kingdom impact in the life of the early church. And they don't have a whole chapter of the Bible devoted to them telling us all about it. But there's two lessons that I hope we can pull out from the life of Aquila and Priscilla today. Two lessons that I hope will allow us to leave here and open up our homes and open up our lives for a quietly powerful kingdom impact. And I, these lessons just center on us making our homes and our lives available for God to do and use with whatever way God wants to use it. And so pray with me, and let's jump into this chapter and learn from the Lord what he wants us to. God, help us now. Uh, we are people who like to put our hands tightly around things. We don't like, it, it's stretching us to think about opening our home and opening our lives. But Lord, this couple who we're going to study today, what we see is complete open-handedness of their home and their lives. God, what we see is a quiet, quietly powerful kingdom impact. And Lord, we want that for our lives as well. And so, God, would you loosen our grip around our control over things? And, Lord, would we just walk out of here open-handed, saying to you, Lord, my house and my life is yours. Bring into it and move it wherever you want to move it and whoever you want to bring me, God. We want to live with that kind of open availability to your leading. Help us do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Back with me in verse 2. Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so here's Paul in Corinth, a Vegas-type city, and he comes across Aquila and Priscilla. And Aquila and Priscilla do two very important things for Paul, who finds himself in a new city. They provide him a job, they provide him work, and they provide him a place to live. Now, it says that they shared the same trade, uh, this trade of being a tent maker. 
Um, we, we don't know exactly what this was like. Was it the, maybe the tanning of hides? Uh, was it the, um, in, in parts of the area where Paul grew up, there was this weaving of fabric that would be used as curtains or to make tents. But whatever this trade was, they shared this same tent-making trade. And so here's Paul in a new city. On the weekends, on the Sabbath, he's reasoning about Jesus in the synagogue. All week long, he's working alongside Aquila and Priscilla in their common trade, and he also is bumming a couch off them at night. Now, if someone came up to you after church and they said, hey, you know, I'm just going to be bold here. I, we need a place to stay. Could we, you know, do you think maybe we could? And you would probably say, of course, like our home's open to your home. Um, what might be like one question, though, you would want to know about their stay? Uh, how, how, hey, how long are you thinking? I want to pull your attention down to verse 11 because I want you to get a feel for what Paul's stay here is like. Verse 11. And he stayed a year and six months. Teaching the word of God among them. Hey, 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 bro, I thought this was like a couch for a night, right? You don't see that with Aquila and Priscilla. Paul's home becomes, their home becomes Paul's home. Like as Paul's around the city, people say, hey, where do you live? He's probably started to answer by this time, hey, my house is over here. It's just that they have completely opened up their home to the Apostle Paul. And for the year and a half, he's ministering in Corinth. Well, from all we know, he is staying with this couple the entire time. Now, file that note away. Their Aquila and Priscilla were willing to open their home to Paul. Now let's look at the details of Paul's ministry in Corinth. And then we're going to come back to that point here in a few minutes. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy, they, they, these were the two men who were Paul's traveling companions on a second missionary journey. When they arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of, of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So I, I love it. Think about this picture. Paul's preaching in the synagogue. He's preaching to Jews. And they're like, this is, this is hogwash, whatever. And they're reviling him. And he says, hey, your blood be on your own head. I'm innocent. I'm going to minister to the Gentiles. Out the front walk of the synagogue, he walks. He walks over. He walks right in next door. And this now becomes the headquarters of the Gentiles, the house of Titius Justice. Now, some cool things happen here. Verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. Now, pause, look at me for a second. Um, I think it is so awesome the specific word that God is going to give to Paul right here. Think about what's most likely going through Paul's mind. Every city he's been to, once he's riled up the Jews, the torches and pitchforks have come out. The beatings have begun. And so, like, 
in his boldness, yes, he's just stood before the synagogue and he's like, you're blood on your own heads. He walks next door and he's still doing ministry. But do you think he's wondering, like, are they, are they planning the coup right now? Are, they, are, they, are, they, are the pitchforks out? Are, is a beating on the way? Now look at the word of comfort God gives him here. Why? Because I think he wants to communicate to Paul, I want you to stay in the city for a season. I want you to camp out here for some time. Look what he says. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, verse 9, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul, don't be afraid. Paul, keep doing what you're doing. Keep saying what you're saying. Keep proclaiming Jesus. And then the most comforting words we could ever hear, for I am with you. And if God is with us, and if God is for us, who can stand against us? And this word of comfort for Paul to just kind of deep breath, camp out in Corinth for a season and do some ministry here. Now, look at verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the region in which Corinth was in, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now, uh, picture the tribunal here. Um, the tribunal, what is the tribunal? This is uh, this, this wall. There's a sign on that wall, and if you could read it, it would say Bema seat. The tribunal was the Bema seat in Corinth. It was the judgment seat. It was where the, this proconsul, Gallio, he would have sat and he would have judged on matters. And so Paul is used to this. He's been pulled before the Sanhedrin in Judea. He's been pulled before the Areopagus in Athens. And now here we go again. He's pulled before the tribunal for, for, for the, the ruler, the leader of the area to rule on him. And look at, look at what happens before the tribunal here. Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. The Jews made a united attack on Paul, brought him before the tribunal. Verse 13, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things, and he drove them from the tribunal. And so Paul's standing there, he's about to give us a defense, and the, the, the leader just gives the defense for him. Like, what are you doing here? This is a matter of your law. This is a matter of your faith. You want me to, what did this guy do? What crime did he commit? Who did he kill? What did he steal? Nothing? Okay, get out of here. Look at what they do to the leader of their own synagogue. And they all seized Sosthenes, verse 17, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. Stop, look up, look up, don't cheat, don't, don't cheat. Look up. Paul is making plans to leave Corinth now. And where did it say, you can look back in this part, don't look ahead. Where did it say he's getting ready to go back to? This should cue us, uh, cue us into Paul, the end of 
Paul's second missionary journey is coming. He's going back to Syria, and Syria is Antioch. Antioch is HQ2, the sending base of the, the Gentile mission. And so Paul's going to head back there, and it's going to tell us two people are going to go with him. Now, if we didn't cheat, or if you've never read this before, who would you assume are the two people that will go back to finish out the second, second missionary journey with Paul? Who, who do we expect to be mentioned here? Silas and Timothy. That's what we would expect. And that's not at all what we see. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him who? Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincre, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow, probably a Nazarite vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Okay, pause. Let's get our bearings. Aquila and Priscilla agree that, hey, we think God's calling us to go with you. And, and, and over to Ephesus, they go with Paul. Paul is there for just kind of a blip on the radar. His first trip to Ephesus is, is short and length. He goes into the synagogue. He teaches. They're like, stay with us. Keep teaching us this stuff. And he's like, um, maybe one day. If God wills, I'll be back, but I got to go. He leaves. Who stays? Who stays? Aquila and Priscilla stay. And now, like, just, I mean, think about that for a minute. You left Rome. You went to Corinth. You go with Paul to Ephesus, and you're like, Paul, we're with you to the end. And Paul's like, hey, I'm out of here. You guys are staying. And here you are once again in a new city all by yourself. Now, what's about to happen is this. Luke, the writer of Acts, he's going to very quickly just bullet point the list of details to finish out Paul's secondary, second missionary journey. And Paul did this, and Paul did this, and Paul did this. Look, look at it in verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Boom. Quick statement, and here's how Paul's second missionary journey ended, and then he began to visit some regions he had been before. I believe Luke quickly bullet points how Paul ends his second missionary journey because he wants to keep the focus on what's going to happen in Ephesus with this couple Paul left here. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Think about what this would have been like for Aquila and Priscilla. They're in Ephesus. They visit the synagogue every weekend. They're worshiping there. One day in walks this young, eloquent teacher, and he, he, he's invited to teach there, and he begins to proclaim, I want to tell you, this Jesus, this Savior has come, and his name is Jesus. Imagine their ears perking up, their heart leaping inside of them as they went, this guy is teaching Jesus as Lord. And then they keep listening, they keep listening, and they're like, oh, this is so good, this is so good. But he, 
he doesn't have a complete understanding of Jesus. It's not that what he was teaching was incorrect. It was what he was teaching was, was, was not complete. And look at what they do with this young teacher here. Verse 25, he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirits. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they, what's your Bible say? What do they do there? They took him aside. Anyone have an NIV? Anyone have an NIV? What's your Bible say? They what? They invited him where? They invited him to their house. They took him aside. They invited him to their house. And they explained to him the way of God more accurately. I want you to understand how Aquila and Priscilla are using their home. Paul comes to Corinth. You need a place to stay. Our house is your house. Come on. Think of how that equipped them this think of how that equipped them for this assignment right here. Can you imagine what sitting around the dinner table with the apostle Paul was like? Hey, when you were teaching that uh, at synagogue, can we follow up with you on that and tell us more about Jesus? Can you imagine a year and a half with Paul and their understanding of Jesus? So now when this eloquent teacher, this guy Apollos, who will become one of the, 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 the most used teachers in the early church, when he comes to Ephesus, they're going, oh, no, no, we can instruct this guy on some things. And they invite him into their home. And I don't think this was just like a, hey, um, you know, you just preached. You want to come over for lunch? I believe this was a regular thing. I believe they poured into this guy's life. I believe they discipled him along. And then he's going to leave and he's going to go to Corinth. And it's Aquila and Priscilla, this quietly powerful couple we just find in the background of the New Testament who will be the ones who have poured in and equipped this teacher. And we see Apollos is going to move on here. Verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Um, home open to Paul, year and a half. Home open to Apollos. We want to instruct you. We want to disciple you. We want to pour into you. I want to make one more case of an open home by Aquila and Priscilla before I make our first point to us. Paul's going to write a letter, and he's going to, I believe, write this letter to the church in Corinth, where he was just before, when he's back in Ephesus. And at the end of this letter, he's going to write to the church in Corinth, we find these words. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the, the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Look at this couple. Paul, you need a place to stay? Our house is your house. Apollos, you need discipled? Our house is your house. Church, you need a place to meet? Our house is your house. These people's home was open for the Lord to do whatever he wanted to do and bring whoever he wanted to bring. So first point, take a deep breath. Ready? Because this is scary. 
If we're really going to live by this point, if we're really going to live with an Aquila and Priscilla mindset, this, is, this can be a bit stretching for us. My home is not ultimately mine. So I'll open it to whoever God sends me. Don't you want to put like caveats on that? Except these people. My home is not ultimately mine, so I'll open it to whoever God sends me. You know, one of the hardest things about preaching is when you have to preach on something you don't live out very well. And this stretches me. I like my home to be a place I can just, I just want to go home. And I don't want to be around anyone at times. Anyone else feel me on that, right? You're going to leave me hanging up here, okay? Like, y'all... Are y'all just models of hospitality out there? <laughs> and when I look at the life of Aquila and Priscilla, need a place to live? Yeah. Our house, your house, year and a half. Come on. What if this type of mentality means people are, some, someone, someone's going to be moving in? They're like, oh, please, Lord. One of the alternatives. <laughs> what if this means... Folks, that a younger couple is to fill your living room one night a week for you to pour into, to teach what it means to be a young couple, newly married, to be a young couple raising kids. And the consistency of week after week, Kevin and Jill, Wednesday after Wednesday, your home becomes their home. What if if that's a couple God wants to have refrigerator rights in your house? Y'all know what refrigerator rights are, right? The people in your life, it's not weird for them to walk through the front door and walk right to the refrigerator. Like, if you invited me over for lunch and I did that, I'd be weird, okay? Uh, guys, what if, what if the man cave is supposed to be invaded by another younger guy that you're to pour your life into? You're like, not my man cave. Parents, what if your house is the place your teenage son and daughter's friends are supposed to invade? on a regular basis? And what if as those 15 to 18-year-olds are processing through life and the way 15 to 18-year-olds process through life, you're to be there in the background just quietly guiding the conversation? But they'll spill orange pop on my white rug. They will. But they're loud, they are. But they stink, they do. Man, what could God do with a whole church full of people who just left here today and said, Lord, my house is your house. And I, pff, I'll probably be more comfortable with just not opening it, but it's, it's open for whoever you bring us. Now, I want to make a second point that I've already alluded to in this sermon. Uh, for Aquila and Priscilla, not only was this principle of an open home and an open life a matter of who they invited into it, This principle of an open home and an open life was a matter also of where they called it. What I mean, where they called home. I want to show us from some different places in the New Testament, the traveling, the reestablishment of home in which Aquila and Priscilla lived by. We've already seen they've left Rome. They were forced out of Rome. Their path intersected with Paul in Corinth. When Paul went to Ephesus, they went with him. Now, a few years later, Paul is going to write a letter 
to a church meeting back in the city of Rome. This is where they were from. And so a few years later, when Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome, he's going to say this, Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means at some point, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they left Ephesus and they traveled back to where we originally learned that they had lived, back to Rome. And now when we see them back in Rome, logic would have it they're back home. This is where they ended their days. I mean, they were just part of the church in Rome and they were used by God to pour in and encourage this new church in the city of Rome. Um, Paul's going to write another letter. The last letter he ever wrote. It's a letter to Timothy. While Timothy's pastoring in Ephesus. And in the last letter, at the end of the last letter that Paul ever wrote to Timothy while he's in Ephesus, we see these words. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of that guy. (laughs) What does this mean? It means from Rome to Corinth to Ephesus to Rome to Ephesus. What's the principle? Deep breath. Here it is. My home is not ultimately mine. So I'm open to move it wherever God sends me. And now I know what we're thinking. Yeah, I ain't moving. Like, yeah, that's probably for some other folks. My grandkids are here. We like where we live. And that's, that's, pro- that's, that's probably the case for many of us here. God may never call any of us to a geographic move for the building of the kingdom. But as God makes us the church planting church God has called us to be, who's going to make up the core groups of these new churches and new cities where we go? We are. And in the weirdest way, we're going to announce, and here's, the, here's this church, and we're going to plant it over there, and the Holy Spirit's just going to gently go, hey, 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 and you're going. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. No, I'm not. Yeah, you don't want to do this with me. You're going. You know, when our church was planted, people moved. I'm not talking about drove. When our church was planted, people moved from Crawfordsville, Indiana. People moved from Avon, Indiana. People moved from Fort Wayne, Indiana. People moved from Cincinnati, Ohio. People moved from Palos Heights, Illinois. They're all significant leaders in the life of our church to this day. Because it's what God does. And Priscilla and Aquila didn't go, man, we, we kind of like Ephesus. No, we're comfortable in Rome. This is where we knew. This is where we had to move from. We want to stay in Rome. No, back to Ephesus you go. Church, what if we'll have a quietly powerful kingdom impact when our home is just open and available to God? Whoever he brings us, wherever he sends us. What if in the background, what if in the background of this era of the church, There's no chapter written on us. There's no book written on us. No one ever knows the impact that this this out-of-the-way couple on the south side of Indianapolis have. But there's just little notations. And there they were. And then they invited them in. And then they moved over here. And just the quiet kingdom impact. 
an open and available home and life will have for the world. Now, we're going to transition into a time of communion. And I, I want to connect this very practical, pragmatic challenge to communion here. And if you're serving, you can get up and get ready to serve communion. But if you're not serving, keep your eyes up here. Don't let them distract you. The only way we will live a life completely open and available to God, who God, whoever you want me to minister to and wherever you want me to go, I will do it, is when we really understand what Christ has already done for us on our behalf. He didn't stay in heaven. He came to earth. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He never would have had to die a criminal's death. And on our behalf, the Lord completely gives of himself. He goes to the cross. He sheds his blood for our sin. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And when we realize what Christ has done for us, his sacrifice on our behalf. There's something inside of our heart that doesn't begrudgingly go, fine, I'll do it. They can come over. There's this joy of going, Lord, what you've done for me, my life is yours. Whoever, wherever, whatever you want, it's yours. And so in this time of communion, which every, every time we do this, we, we search our hearts. Scripture calls us to examine our hearts during this time. I would just ask us to examine. Are the hands open? Are we saying, Lord, whoever, wherever, whatever, my house and my life are yours. And if they're not, that this would just be a time we repent. We say, Lord, I'm clinging so tightly to something that's not even ultimately mine. It's yours. And in these moments, there'd be a release of that to the Lord. The, uh, the ushers are going to come, and they're going to pass trays before you. Two cups are stacked on top of each other, the bread representing the body of Christ, the juice representing his bloodshed. Make sure you get both of those cups. The inside of that and the cups in purple are gluten-free for those of you that need that. Uh, this is a time right now for those of you who know Jesus as Lord to remember his sacrifice on your behalf. It's a time for you to examine your heart to confess anything that needs to be confessed, to let him do the work on your heart that needs to be done. And in a few moments, I'll be back up to lead us through the taking of the elements.